0: We are in the book of Esther, and beginning next week, we're going to be looking at the New Testament. Uh, we've been doing Bible, a, a Bible challenge to read through the book of the Old Testament, and now we're going through the New Testament, and hopefully you're still reading the Old Testament right now. Uh, but if not, we're going to invite you to jump in, because we'll start in Matthew next week. We'll do a little background, but you can start next week, and if you'll start... As a matter of fact, if you'll start right now, you can do two chapters a day and you will finish the New Testament before the end of the year. So I challenge you to do that. But today we'll be in the book of Esther. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. And uh, you know, St. Augustine one time was asked the question, if you had to pick one thing that, uh, that makes you believe in Christianity that you feel like is almost an unarguable offense, what would that be? He said, "The church, and they said, "Why the church?" He said, "Well, you look at how uh, you th- look at how it started with uh, just twelve individuals and eleven of those were martyred. You look and see how it was really primarily the poor and the outcasts who came to, to the faith and how they were persecuted, how emperor after emperor looked to exterminate them, and then by the end of the fourth century, we see that Uh, Christianity is reigning. Even the emperor himself is calling himself a Christian. Uh, Pretty remarkable, Augustine would say, and I look at that as proof of the reality of God and of Christ Jesus. The same might also be said as we look and as we think about today and as we think about what's going on uh, in Christianity. It's really pretty remarkable when you stop and think about uh, what's happening. Uh, of course, we're very familiar with what's going on in uh, North Korea. And, you know, a lot of people are asking the question where is God in this? Where is the providence of God? How can this be occurring? Is God really in control as we see what happens across our nation and in other countries? But I think there's something also that bears keeping in mind. Uh, when you think about Christianity Day, I, I want to take just for example, Korea. Uh, Korea, we, we know in the 1900s, was really one country. We know at the time there were only about 10 to 12,000 Christians in the, the nation or the country of Korea at that time. That's about the number of people that live in Lantana, where I live. <clears throat> so that was the number. By 1950, it, it had roughly almost doubled. So still not a lot of people uh, in a, an entire country that call themselves Christians. And But then we see the resurgence. We see missionaries. We see evangelism. We see something just kind of taking off. We see the country begin to explode in faith. And now today, there are over 50 million people in just South Korea alone, and it is estimated now that one out of every three people in that nation are believers in Christ Jesus. That's as much as if you take, so you think it was Lantana, then you take the entire 7 million metroplex of DFW, you take the entire metroplex of Houston, of San Antonio, and of Austin. And that is how rapidly it's grown. And not just that it's grown, not just one out of every three people call themselves Christians in Korea now, but take it a step further. Other than the United States, they send more missionaries out than any other country in the world. But even bigger than that, if you know anything about the 1040 window or the Arabian Peninsula, which is an area that's been the most hostile toward the gospel, uh, very predominantly Muslim, and a high price to be paid uh, if you convert. Uh, just like India, as our, our brother was sharing us earlier, in an area that's been largely unreached. You know who the main missionaries that are getting in and they're going there? You know where they're coming from? Korea. Korea. Yes, Western, we're trying to send people in, but largely they it's very hard for Western missionaries to get in, and we're finding Western missionaries are not quite as effective, quite candidly. A lot of the Koreans are going, some of them are businessmen, but some of them are, are going, to, uh, to clean homes, to be servants in different manners, and they're sharing the gospel. And now we're seeing percentage-wise more people come to Christ in that Arabian Peninsula than any, almost anywhere else in the, in the world other than China and Nepal. Is that amazing what's happening in those Arabian countries? Matter of fact, out of the ten fasted, where Christianity is growing the fastest percentage-wise, about seven of those are coming in that peninsula. God is using Korea. But now you've got North Korea on one side, and by many uh, pr- persecution uh, organizations, they would say the most oppressive country in the world toward Christianity is North Korea. So you've got North Korea right here with their missiles literally pointed at South Korea. And you can see it. And yes, yes their dictator is talking about what's, you know, what he's going to do in the United States and Guam. And, and I believe in the providence of God. And by the way, not to disturb you, but for just a moment you go, "What? you know, we're the Christian nation and God's going to protect the Christians, right? I don't know if we want to get in a comparison game uh, with Korea or a lot of these other countries that are coming to Christ as far as people come to Christ and we think we're the Christians. Uh, I, I think we might be sadly uh, disappointed if we get into a scale by what's real and what's not. But with that said, We know the number of missionaries are coming out of South Korea, and we know this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities of darkness. And those two countries are right there at each other. Now, that's not by coincidence. All throughout history, there's always been evil. There's always been Satan who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, who wants to eliminate uh, Christ, who wants to eliminate the glory of God. But God still reigns. The providence of God Take the Jewish people for for instance. So here's this ragtag group that end up find themselves in Egypt. They begin to multiply, and the Egyptian Pharaoh says, "Let's kill off all the boys." Basically, he was going to exterminate Judaism and let them intermarry, and that was going to be the end of that. We're going to have to worry about it. But God through Moses saves the people of Israel, and then they go and lay to Canaan. Canaan, and then you got the Philistines and the Malachites and everybody else trying to exterminate them, trying to wipe them off the map. But yet they succeed. You have the Syrians that come in and wage war and try to wipe them out. You have the Babylonians who come and cart them off. As a matter of fact, that's where we're going to be in the story today with Esther. And not only do they defeat them in battle, but they pull them all out and they make them as slaves and they displace them, put other people in their country, and and trying to just, again, exterminate the culture of Judaism. But then the, through God's sovereign mercy, the Persian Empire comes in and it defeats the Babylonian Empire, and it allows the Jews to go back, start going back to their homeland. But many of them stay, and that's where we'll look at Esther in just a moment. But if you go on throughout history, and we know, uh, we, we know, we find the, the Jews falling again, and the nation falling again. And matter of fact. Uh, you, you go up to the time of christ they really, uh, they really don 't have their own nation, so to speak. they still have their language to a degree, but but not really it 's not a national language. They are under the oppression of the Greeks and then the, ultimately the Romans <clears throat> and what 's interesting is you don 't see uh, the, the national tongue of course it 's Hebrew. and there's uh, there 's not a national language it becomes a dead language hebrew there are, Few individuals that speak it here and there, but there's not any nation that establishes Hebrew as their national language. It becomes what's known as a dead language. And this is really for over 2,000 years, but certainly for, for 1,900 years, but really even more than that, 2,000 years. Then all of a sudden they're displaced. They don't have a place. All right. They're, they're scattered out all throughout the world. Fast forward uh, to 1935, and you start to see uh, the beginnings of the Holocaust. It really kicks in about 1940, 1941, and we see six million Jews being killed uh, up until 1945. So there's no national language. They've been scattered across the world. Six million of them have been killed through the Holocaust. So that's pretty much the end of Judaism. I mean, nobody in history, no people group in history has ever come back from that. But what happens in 1948? God's providence happens in 1948. The nations, many of them, uh, certainly not Christian nations, certainly not sympathetic to Judaism, uh, other than they feel bad that six million of them have been killed, and they decide, and you can argue this, but because of the atrocities, we're going to reestablish a nation. So in 1948, the nation of Israel is reborn. Hebrew comes back from being a dead language, becomes a national language. And now the Jews are reestablished on the earth. Is that not crazy? Now, there are multiple times in history when it looked like they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth, this being one of them, this being one of the primary. And this is the story of how a Jewish orphan girl, a little girl named Esther, who didn't have a mother or a father, and she's left, she's going to be in serious trouble, but she has a cousin. Some say it was an uncle. Some of the translators say it was actually an uncle, but a cousin Uh, or an older cousin or uncle named Mordecai, who comes in and adopts her. It doesn't appear that Mordecai has a wife. looks like he's a single dad, and he's raising this little girl, who's not his natural girl, but it's his niece or cousin, and he raises her. And it's in a time he's raising her in the area of Susa, Susa, the king there is Xerxes. Uh, Depending on what your translation might say, Ahasuerus, but that actually is the same name for Xerxes as we know him. Uh, Many believe he was the son of Darius that we read about in Daniel. Most powerful king in the world. He's over most of the known world, and he's about to go over the the last little sliver of Greece that he's going to go after here in just a little bit. But here's this little orphan girl growing up in the capital city with her cousin who works at the gates and there's King Xerxes, but then there's a girl. We'll go ahead and put the characters up here on the board. Then there's the queen. Her name is Vashti, and Vashti is the queen to Xerxes, but Vashti, we're going to read about in just a moment, dishonors him, so he removes her, and then there's also someone called Haman, who is the prime minister, who's kind of the villain of this story. So you've got Xerxes, the king The Persian king, you've heard of the law of the Medes and the Persians. Many scholars say this is attributed back to him, the most powerful man in the world. Vashti, his queen. Esther, a little Jewish orphan girl who's been raised by Mordecai, her cousin. And then you've got Haman, who is the prime minister, the number two guy in charge. Now, let's pick up in our story, beginning in Esther chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. In Esther chapter 1, now in the days of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, who is also Xerxes, I like saying that name better, and it's what we call him, Xerxes, who's reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when the king sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of the reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. The army of the Persian media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed him the great riches of his royal glory and his splendor and his pomp and greatness of the days were 180 days. So for six months, he's invited all the noblemen, all the military strategists, all those with authority to come and they're having this huge party for six months. Now, historians tell us that what was probably transpiring is as they're preparing to attack. Greece. They're getting together. They're talking about, they're strategizing, they're planning for six months. They're doing this. They're coming in, but they're eating well and they're drinking well the whole time. And then finally they get their plan together and then they're going to do seven more days. And when these days were completed, the Bible tells us the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the courts of the garden and the king's palace. So they all came together. They've got their plan. And so, okay, the last seven days, everybody come in. We're going to have a party. We're going to take Greece. That'll be the end of the the empire. We will completely dominate the whole known world. So um, we're not going to read all the rest of that in the interest of time. Go ahead and uh, skip down to verse 11. They begin to drink. They begin to party. They begin to do everything. And then they decide that they're going to have, uh, the king decides, you know what? I want to have Queen Vashti come in. I want everybody to see her. You you think it was for intellectual purposes? I think not. He wants his queen to come in, and some scholars say the reason he wanted his queen to come uh, wearing her crown is because that's all she was wearing. Uh, There's a case being made for that. But guess what? The queen, queen says no in verse 12, and she refuses to come, and the king's command delivered by the units. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. They've been strategizing for six months. Now these last seven days, they're having this big banquet. He wants to show off his queen before he goes into battle. And she says, I'm not going in there with all those guys. She refuses, and he becomes angry. Now he is not a reasonable man, history tells us. Matter of fact, when he goes in this battle and he loses 300 ships because of a storm, he orders his officers all to take whips and go to the sea and to give the sea 300 lashes with a whip. This is the kind of man we're dealing with right here. He's not always reasonable. And so, uh, so now he finds himself, his queen, who he greatly uh, appreciated and respected and honored, has, has basically embarrassed him. So he has her vanished. He has her excommunicated. She's gone. And so that's what transpires with her. And then he goes off into battle. And he's there for a while. At first, it seems like it's going well. But in the end, it doesn't. He takes over a million, history tells us he takes over a million men, uh, many of them mercenaries, uh, but then at the end things don't go well. He loses the majority of his troops, comes back without a victory, comes back without riches, without pride, and now he doesn't have a queen either, and so now he's depressed. And his staff sees that he's depressed, and they say, you know what, let's do this. Let's have a Miss Susa contest. Let's have a Miss Persian Empire contest. Let's have a beauty contest and let's get all the most beautiful women all over and then we'll bring them all in and then he can pick one. So they tell him about that and he goes, That sounds like a great idea. I think we'll do that. And so that's exactly what they do. And so you pick up in um, Esther chapter 2, verse 17, and the king chooses a young orphan girl who was a Jewish girl. He didn't know she was Jewish, raised by Mordecai, and she's the one that makes the great impression. She's probably 16, 17, maybe 18 years of age at this point the king loved Esther more than all the other women and she won the grace and the favor in his sight more than all the other virgins that he set the royal crown on her head and made her the queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast, because he liked to have those for all of his officials and servants it was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai her cousin was sitting at the king 's gate because this is where he worked, and Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. She has not told him mordecai said don 't tell him that you 're a jew there's a lot of there 's a lot of bigotry here there 's a lot of racial oppression it 's not going to go well. you just keep that to yourself and so she 's not said anything, she's done as her cousin has asked her. And Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So here she is, 1718, in the courts, but she still honors and respects her cousin. And in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bictham and Teresh, those sound like Teresh names, don't they? Bictham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated, it was found to be so and the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now remember that phrase, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king because that has to do with part of the sovereignty and the providence of God. So what's transpired? Well. Uh, Vashti has been vanquished, so to speak, and Esther has now become the queen. Um, she's now uh, sitting at, she's now in the court of the king, and she's been given this new position of power. But no one knows that she's a Jew. Well, as we fast forward a little bit here, we find ourselves in chapter three, and in chapter three of the book of Esther, uh, we see something transpiring. There's a villain. The villain's name is Haman, and Haman is the guy uh, who's second in command, he's manipulated his way up the ladder, and uh, he has taken his robe, and he's embedded, some Jewish scholars say he's embedded a pagan god into his robe, and he identifies and deifies himself, and he commands that everybody fall down and worship him when he comes into the room. But the Bible says in verse 5, And Haman saw Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai is Esther's cousin. He's a Jew. He's an upstanding Jew. And when Haman saw Mordecai, did not bow down or pay homage to him. Haman was filled with fury. Haman's second command. Do you see the symbol I have? Do you know who I am? Then you should worship me. Bow down. But Mordecai refuses. But he's disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. So what's happening here? Well, Haman is so offended that Mordecai won't fall down and worship him, that instead of just taking out on him, he thinks to himself, as he is you know, so caniacal and evil, he says, you know what? He's a Jew. I'd like to see them all wiped off the face of this map. So I'm going to devise a plan where we get rid of all of them. It's not enough just to get back at Mordecai. He's probably one of those guys that'd be willing to die and be a martyr, but I'm going to get rid of all of them. So he—that's exactly what he sets out to do. He makes a plan, and his plan is this: He goes before the king. He's second in command. He has the king's ear, and he says to the king, "There is a certain group of people here in our country. They're not native. They're not nationals, but they have—they live here, and their customs are different. Their rules are different. They don't observe our laws. They don't observe our our customs, and they are becoming problematic." For your kingdom. And I fear that uh, they, it may lead to a revolt at some point. So let me deal with them. And the king says, Do as you see fit. And so he commissions him and gives him his stamp and commissions him to go and to, to do as he sees fit. And so Haman announces there's going to be a day of, of reckoning. All Jews will be killed, matter of fact, and if you kill, you can kill whatever Jews you want at this point, and if you do it starting at this day, you can have all their resources. Everything that they have, you can have the plunder. So the plan is announced. It's set as a law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be changed, and now it's been pronounced, and now this is a bad day. Mordecai begins to, to weep, and he begins to fast, and he begins to cry out, and we pick up. That he recognizes that because of his stance, they're going to wipe the Jews off the face, 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 so to speak, of the Persian Empire. And so this is a drastic situation. So Mordecai does all the only thing that he can do. He goes to his niece, or he goes to his cousin. And he tells Esther, this is what's going on. We pick up here in chapter 4, verse 13. But Esther lets him know, hey, if I go before the king, he's not summoned me in quite a while. It's been months since I've been before the king. If I go before him without him being summoned, he can have me beheaded. Matter of fact, that we've been given clear instructions. We are not to come unless called for. And so I may die for this. But Mordecai says this. Then Mordecai told her, Esther... Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's household, that'd be me, will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've been placed here through the providence of God for such a time as this. You were a Jewish orphan girl. I raised you. I I taught you the statutes of Judaism. I taught you the faith. I've taught you integrity. And God chose you and he placed you here for such a time as this. It's no accident, Esther. Esther hears these words. And she says, okay. And so she puts a plan into action. She tells Mordecai and she tells the others, go and fast for three days and then I'll go before the king. So Esther goes and she puts herself together the best that she can. She puts on her best garment. She puts on her makeup, upon her perfume. And she gets herself as beautiful as she can be. She's probably about 18 years old. And she goes and she stands on the outer recesses of the court until the king notices her. And notice her, he does. And then he gives her the motion, come. It could have been off, off the head, but he says, come. And when she comes before him, he says, what can I do for you, my queen? Why do you come? She goes, well, I would like for you to come uh, to, a, to a lunch with me. Well, certainly I can do a lunch. Is there anything else? Just come to lunch with me and, and bring Haman. So Haman comes, and the king comes, and they have lunch together. And, and the king asks her again, says, oh, Esther, what would you like? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. That was just an expression that he used uh, back then. But he said, up to half my kingdom. What do you desire? And she said, oh, great king, I would just love to have dinner with you tomorrow night. And it could Haman come as well? Well, Haman's feeling pretty good about himself. He's thinking, you know, I'm second command, and I do dinner. I do lunch with the king. It's just the three of, three of us, and I keep getting invited. Now they want me to come back and go dinner with him, and so he goes home, and he's pretty excited about himself, but on the way home, he notices there Mordecai again, that Jew, and he won't bow, and he's so angry, he gets home, he's just in a foul mood, and his wife said, what's wrong? He said, that Mordecai, I know I'm going to be getting rid of all the Jews, but it just makes me so mad. He still will not honor and respect me. He still will not show me worship, and he said, she says, well, now you're second in command. Why don't you just go ahead and kill him now? Go ahead and just hang him. He goes, that's a great idea. So he tells his servants, go out and build a gallow 75 feet high, and tomorrow I will hang Mordecai. I don't have to put up with this any longer. But isn't it interesting what transpires that night? That night, the king can't sleep. Remember, they're going to go to dinner all together the next night. That night, the king can't sleep. And so he orders the Chronicles that we read about a while ago in chapter 2, verse 23. When he can't sleep, that's what you do. You read boring material. I do that myself. <laughs> I read my sermons sometimes. But nevertheless, I, <laughs> he goes back and he looks and he begins to read those Chronicles and he sees one day where his life was saved from two would-be assassins. And there was a guy named Mordecai who turned them in. And he asked the servants, he goes, what was done for this man Mordecai? said nothing. So nothing was ever done for him. He was never recognized? No, he was never recognized, king. He goes, well, I'll fix that tomorrow. So the next day he arises and when he gets up, um, he said, who's who's in my court? What what authorities are in my court? And I said, well, Haman's standing there. He said, well, bring him on in. And he says, Haman, what should be done for a man in whom I want to bring great honor? Haman, so full of himself, so egotistical things, he must be talking about me. He says, well, here's what I'd do, O great king. I would take one of your royal robes that you have worn, and I would place it upon that man. Then I would put him upon the royal horse, of which is your your primary horse that you ride, and I would place him upon there, and I would put a crown on his head and, and a... Staff in his hand and a crown upon his head. And then I would walk throughout the streets and saying, this is what the king does for the man that he wants to honor. He goes, that's a great idea. I want you to do all of it. I want you to take Mordecai and go get him a robe and put him on a horse. And you take him and make the announcement. Can you imagine Haman is so mad? Oh, I was going to kill that guy today. And now I'm going to have to lead him around like I'm at a circus. What am I? He's so angry, he's so mad, he thinks in the back of his mind. But still, one day, he, the day's coming, the Purim's coming, that he's going to be taken care of. So he reluctantly takes Mordecai and walks him through the streets. And he gets home, he's so angry, and he almost forgets, oh, but I got dinner with the king and the queen. So he gets himself all together, dresses himself up, goes, goes to meet to the palace to meet the king and the queen. And while they're there, of course, the king says, "Now." Esther, please tell me, what is it that you would like? What is it that you need? What requests might you have? She said, oh king, uh, I'm so blessed to be here. I'm so thankful uh, to be here as queen. I'm so blessed and what a great honor it is. I only ask this because uh, there is one who seeks my life and seeks the life of my people and would have me uh, killed and all my people killed. And uh, I just ask on our behalf, Lord, oh king, that uh, you might save us. he said, who would do such a thing? What man would take it upon himself to do such a disgraceful and dishonoring thing to him? Who is this man? Tell me at once. And she points her finger at Haman. It is him. And Haman didn't realize she was a Jew. And at that point, he realizes she's a Jew. And Haman has produced this edict. And the king, doesn't. he wasn't really even paying attention. He had just trusted Haman. He said, it is Haman. And the king takes himself up in such a rage and he runs out of the room in a fury. He's so angry. But just a few moments later, he comes back and he sees Haman holding on to her, either begging her or maybe trying to force her to say something. And when he sees the queen being grabbed by Haman, he loses. He said, that's it. That's it. Off, off his head. That's it. Are there gallows to be built for him? And someone said, hey, he was building some for Mordecai, the guy you honored. Just take him on over there. And so that's exactly where he goes. The gallows that he had intended for Mordecai, he's placed on and he is hung himself. And through that edict, the, the Jews, the king makes it a resolution because he cannot change the law itself. He makes it where the Jews can defend themselves and where they can mount an attack for anybody who would come after him and they are saved because Esther was there for such a time as this, a little Jewish girl who didn't have a mother who didn't have a father, who only had an older cousin, who didn't have anybody else, who took his time and his effort, who took his integrity, who took his, his beliefs and his faith and his values, who cared for her and took care of her and used her and grew her up, never knowing how God might use this little girl. Great story for us. There are four principles, I think, that we glean from this story that I think are great for us to know and to remember and to learn. The first one is always trust in the providence of God. You can always trust in the providence of God. There's a great story. I've told it once before, but I love this story, and I think it's very applicable for here. There was, a, there was an old man one time who had a horse, beautiful white stallion, uh, but he was a poor man, and he had a small farm, and his crops had not been good that year, and things had been difficult. It had been a very harsh winter, and so he barely had enough to get by, and the king gave, a, the, king gave the option, said, hey, Uh, if you'd like to, I would love to buy that horse from you. That's a beautiful horse, and I'll give you a a good sum of money. But he turned it down because that was all he had to work with, and uh, he just felt like that was his horse and he should keep it. And the line had been passed down on his family, so he decided to keep it. And some of the neighbors said, that's crazy. You should have taken it. You You could have your house fixed up. You could have food for the next three or four years. He said, well, it's too soon to see right now, isn't it? Well, not too long after that, the horse ran away just a couple weeks later. And it was gone. And those same neighbors and townsmen came up and said, Oh, old man, you're such a fool. Why did you not sell that horse when you could? Now your horse is left and you have nothing. What a foolish man you've had. And he goes, Well, it's too soon to see right now, isn't it? Too soon to tell. Well, a couple weeks later, that horse came back and had three other beautiful stallions with it. Now he's got four stallions here. And he's in great shape. And and the townspeople come to him and say, Oh, old oh man, you're certainly wise. You didn't sell that horse. You didn't give that horse up. And now you've got four horses. And so you're able to sell two of them. Two of them, and he and he kept one and he sold two. And he was able to, to produce enough food for the next couple of years. And he put himself in a better financial position and he still had his horse. They go, How wise and smart you are. Well, just a couple weeks later, his son, his only son, was helping him break that other stallion when all of a sudden he got thrown off that stallion and both of his legs were crushed, leaving him where he couldn't walk and almost completely crippled. And some of the townspeople said, oh, you're a foolish old man. If you would have sold all three of those horses, you'd have been fine and your son would be able to walk. Now Now he can't help you with the crops and, and now you're just kind of in a bind again. You're certainly a foolish old man. And what did he say? Well, it's too soon to tell. Wasn't but a couple weeks later that war broke out in the kingdom. And the king I solicited all the young men to come and fight on his behalf, and they went off into battle. And most of the young men of that town were placed on the front line, and almost all of them were killed. But the old man's son could not go to battle because he couldn't walk. So many of those same townspeople came back, and they said, Oh, old old man, you're certainly wise. Our sons went to battle, and they didn't come back, but you, you were so wise Your son's legs were crushed and he couldn't go, and now you still have your son, you have your horses, you have your home. He goes, it's still too soon to tell. Can I tell you this? Regardless of what's going on in your life, no matter how bad the oppression, whatever it may be, physical, financial, emotional, social, can I tell you it's too soon to write it off? It's too soon to tell because we believe in a God who can redeem all things. Never forget that. Never forget also, that Mordecai, what did he do? Never forget the impact of a godly role model, a godly role model. Here was a man who decided to take a child that wasn't his. It was a relative, a child that wasn't his, and he invested in that child, never knowing uh, what might become of it. We have up here rocks, and these are rocks of all the children and all the students that have been in our church in the last six months. And I'm gonna ask you at the end of the service, if God places you on your heart, to come and to grab one, two, three, four, five, however many kids you would pray for this year, that you would pray that God would work in and through their lives. You would pray the providential blessings of God upon that child. I'm gonna invite you to do that. That's what I believe Mordecai did. Prayed for his cousin. It wasn't his son or daughter but it was his, his niece or his cousin, and he prayed and he invested. And the third thing I would tell you, the impact of investing in someone is powerful. That little girl, her life was not only changed because he invested her life, the entire Jewish nation through the providence of God was saved. Because a man decided to be a model and he, has, he decided to invest. Not because it was convenient, not because it was easy, not because he was going to get anything from it, but because he knew it was the right thing to do and God had placed it upon his heart. The same is true for you. That's, that's our opportunities to serve in our children's ministry here today. Never underestimate the importance of an investment that you make in someone. If God gives you that opportunity, and we've got plenty of opportunity here. We have people here who don't have the Father Or don't have the mother, but you can choose to be, just like Mordecai chose to be a father to Esther. You can choose to be a godly leader for that child. And lastly, I would say this remember, God redeems everything for His glory. God can redeem everything for His glory. Jerry Sitzer, who was a pastor and author in 1991, he was driving his minivan. They were driving home on the interstate, his wife and three children. And a drunk driver came across the interstate, hit their car head on, killed his wife and his four-year-old. Jerry and his two sons survived, and it was a, just a horrific time. About six months later, he was driving his son, youngest son, David, to soccer practice, and as he's driving him to soccer practice, his son, who had not spoken much, said, Dad, do you think Mom can see us? He said, uh, I don't know, son, I, maybe, I, maybe he can't, maybe she can see us, I kind of think so. Well, Dad, I don't think mom can see us because if heaven's supposed to be such a great place and there's not supposed to be any tears or sorrow, I don't think mom would be able to look down and see how sad we are and how much we miss her. Surely she doesn't see this. Jerry was quiet for a moment, and after about three or four minutes, he pulled off the road and he looked back to his son, David, who was just eight years old, and he said, David, here's what I think. I believe mom can see us, but I believe mom sees the whole picture. So she doesn't have to be sad. She sees everything, and she sees how we're going to be together one day again. She sees how God's going to redeem this and use this. So she sees the whole big picture, so she's not sad. I believe she sees it, and I believe she sees the whole beautiful story. That's what the providence of God does. He sees the whole story. We We just see this little area right now, and we get consumed. We think, oh, God, where are you? What can you do? Have you forgotten us? But God sees the whole story, and he will redeem all pain. He will redeem all difficulties for his glory at some point for the believer in Christ Jesus who trusts him. You can trust in the providence of God. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. I want to invite you today to trust him as your Lord and Savior, to recognize that you're a sinner, and you can't do enough deeds. You can't have enough, quote, karma to get yourself in a good position. But that we're all sinners, and the only way that that breach can be, uh, can be covered is through Jesus Christ. Because the Bible said there can be no forgiveness sin without the shedding of blood. So he shed his blood on our behalf for all who would believe and put our faith in what Jesus Christ did through his death, burial, and resurrection. We might be saved and forgiven. Have you done that? Maybe you're a believer here this morning, and it's just tough. And you're having doubts about God's providence and his control. Can I tell you, it's not over yet. He redeems all things. He sees the big picture. We see but a glimpse. You can trust the providence of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you, God, uh, for your divine providence that Lord goes before us and Lord is, is all around us, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it. God, we know you hear our prayers, we know you work on our behalf, and we know in the end you will redeem all things for your glory. But until that time, may you give us faith, hope, and trust in your divine providence. Thank you for this time. Thank you for all that you do, Lord. May you be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.